There's some Daniel notes going around. I think we might get to Daniel today. And we also have uh, Ezekiel to finish up still. Long book. Did anybody need handouts on Ezekiel? You weren't here the last few weeks. You need handouts. We won't embarrass you for not being here. We'll just assume you lost your notes along the way. Anybody else need notes? Ezekiel? You guys need some Ezekiel notes, right? All right. We're two weeks into Ezekiel, but we still have things to do here. We have all the future stuff, all the uh, eschatological stuff, eschatology to do. Hector, do you need Ezekiel notes? You got Ezekiel notes. There are some Daniel notes going around. I think you, you want this Ezekiel? Okay, I'll send them. I think I already sent those to you. So I hope to get to Daniel today. We'll see. We'll see how long these take. These are some pretty big issues in Ezekiel here. But I made Daniel notes and slides just in case. Forrest, you mind putting uh, one or two more up here? You want to get your Bibles open to Ezekiel. We're going to be looking at a few passages that have given Bible scholars, pastors, Christians a bit of a headache at times. And we're in the second half, really the third part of Ezekiel, uh, around chapter 38. All right. Everybody got notes if you want some? Okay, let's pray. Father, we come before you today to learn from your word, to take instruction, to see what you promise the Jewish people, those who would be converted to Christ, those who would come to know him at the last days. And we know Christ is coming back to set up his kingdom. And so Ezekiel gives us a bit of a picture of that, help us to understand it more, to work as good Bible students, not just to shrug our shoulders and and ignore it, but to dig into the text a bit and think through these different issues. Give us your wisdom. Give us your grace. Please, in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, last week we finished on Gog of the land of Magog. And this was really just the chief prince. It's not, Roshas means a head. So he's the head, the head prince of Meshach and Tubal, which if you trace those names back in Genesis, they have to do with people groups. Uh, people groups, now we don't know exactly where these are because of the, the Tower of Babel, they're spread around. But it has to do probably with something north of Israel, areas there, people groups there. Whoever this guy is, he is head of those areas. And he's going to bring a massive battle upon Israel. So that's where we're at right now. Number 13, interpretive issue. These are interpretive issues to help us think through Scripture. We can just read through and, and say, this is hard to understand. But maybe the second time through the Bible or, or the prophecy of Ezekiel, you want to slow down a bit and just ask some questions. So when is this attack going to occur? When? Is this something in the future? Something that's already happened in the past? When is it? Is this something we expect to happen in our lifetime? Let's look now at Ezekiel 38 and verse 8. After many days, you will be summoned. So this is the prophecy God is speaking to Gog. You will be summoned. In the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword. So here we have the latter years. What is that? Years that are later. Uh, anytime after Ezekiel, I think it indicates something near the end of time, something near the end when Christ is the Messiah is going to come back. Uh, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. This is a time when there's going to be a great battle. Many nations are going to come to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had been a waste, so there wasn't many people there. But now in this text, there are people there. The nation of Israel is restored. But its people were brought out from the nations. So it's at least after Israel's been restored after captivity. And they are living securely. That's a key as well. Living securely. They weren't really living securely during the times where the Greeks ruled over them, during the times where the Romans ruled over them. So again, I, I'm, I'm already seeing language in my mind that pushes towards the future, even for us today. And they are living securely, all of them. You will go up, Gog will go up, you will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. So, of course, God is sovereign over all this. He's the one calling Gog and, and these nations to fight Israel. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest, that live securely, all of them, 
living without walls and having no bars or gates, to capture spoil, to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited, and against the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. So Israel is so blessed. They're, they're profitable. They have cattle. They have goods. And it even refers to them as the center of the world. I don't think this is just geographically on a map. Uh, you look at the map, Israel's kind of, or Jerusalem's kind of in the center. If you center it, of course, let's say on your screen, it would be halfway down around the world, roughly. I mean, of course, the equator is further down. But I think the center of the world here is indicating how important it is. It is a place where trade is going on. They're wealthy. They're dwelling securely. So this is a language I don't think we've really seen this yet. Uh, Sheba and Dadan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, Have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? So the question is, when is this battle? Well, some, a few, a few say that this has already happened in 168 and 167 BC. Antiochus Epiphanes was one of the descendants of Alexander the Great, not a direct descendant, but of the Greek lineage. And he came into the land, he destroyed much of the area, he killed many Jews. He's the one who did the abomination of desolation in the temple. He told the Jews to worship him, to worship him as a god and not the one true God. Of course, that eventually caused them to rebel, and the Maccabean revolt came as a result of many of these persecutions. So some would look back to that. The biggest problem there is we don't see Israel dwelling securely. They're just just getting started from really coming back from captivity, even though they've been back a few hundred years at that point. Um, They're not wealthy. They're not dwelling securely. They're being greatly persecuted by the Greeks. And by the way, this guy Antiochus Epiphanes, he's going to come up in the next few questions. So those who would say it's him here are going to pick him on all the other questions or all the other interpretive issues after this. So if he's your man, you got to stay with him. You got to be consistent because all of this is now looking to the future. And those who want to say this has already happened in our past are going to choose Antiochus. He was an evil man. He was a twisted man. He's going to come up in the book of Daniel as well before we're done with Daniel. He wanted people to worship him. He thought he was special more than any other pagan god. He made himself a god and wanted people to bow down. Other options before the tribulation. And so we have our general tribulation views here. Is this going to happen before the seven-year tribulation, in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, at the end of the seven-year tribulation? If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. We'll come back to it in a future class. Those of you who know what I'm talking about, uh, when is this great invasion of Israel going to happen in this great battle? Before that seven-year start, in the middle, or at the end? Some would say, not only at the end of the tribulation, but after the tribulation. Christ has come back, and he's starting, or about to set up his kingdom, and then there's this big battle. Um, Others say at the end of the millennium, so you read Revelation 20, and somehow Satan finds nations when he's let out at the end of a thousand years, and there's another final battle. So how do we know? Well, we just have to put some things together. We have to look around Scripture. I I like at the end of the tribulation, based on these verses we're going to look at, Um, Others would say before, puts us anywhere really in our history if we say before the tribulation. But we haven't seen a battle like this where not just Arab nations, but many nations from the north come down and attack Jerusalem. So let's look at 39.4. Who would like to read that for me? For us, Ezekiel 39.4. And uh, Hector, why don't you do Revelation 19, uh, 17 and 18. There's this great battle and uh, there's going to be birds called up, and they're going to eat the dead bodies. The same thing's going to happen here in this battle with Gog coming down with his army. So that's from Ezekiel. Now listen to Revelation. So there's so many bodies when Christ comes back and defeats the armies that are attacking. There's so many bodies that it's, it's as if God has called up the birds from all over the world to come and eat, the vultures, the eagles. Uh, it sounds very similar, doesn't it, to Ezekiel. And so I think that's a strong cross-reference Just the fact that there is such an army coming there in Revelation to attack. I'm going to put it there. I mean, you can disagree. This is not a, this is not something you start your own church over necessarily or denomination or whatever. Um, I I do think, though, it hasn't happened yet. So whatever it is, it's got to happen sometime in the future. 
I think that's a strong reference to me. There's so many bodies. They're going to bury them for seven months, it says in Ezekiel. So I'm not even sure how that works with the millennium and all that. But there's going to be a massive battle won by Israel. And that's going to happen, I think, when the Messiah comes back. All right, the big question, the next few really deal with this. The temple in chapters 40 through 48. So we don't have time to read all of those this morning. Hopefully you've looked at those in sometime in the past or recently. I'll just read the first few verses here. And the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the city was taken, on that same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me there. So God took Ezekiel probably in a vision and put him over or looking at Jerusalem, looking at the temple. And the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel, set me on a very high mountain. And on it to the south, there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there. And behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. The man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, give attention to all that I'm going to show you. For you have been brought here in order to show it to you. Declare to the house of Israel all that you see. So there is an angel here in this vision, and he's going to measure something, what looks like a great city. It turns out it's a huge temple. He's going to measure something, and he's told Ezekiel to pay attention and write down all the details. So he starts in verse 5. Behold, there was a wall on the outside of the temple all around. And in the man's hand was a measuring rod of six cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one rod, and the height, one rod. Then he went up to the gate, which faced east, went up to its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one rod in width. So he just goes on from the outside of this huge temple all the way in to the very center. And he's describing what this structure is going to look like. It's huge. We know what a cubit is, so we can kind of get an idea of how big it's going to be. Chapter 41 describes the inner temple. 42 describes the chambers of the temple. And then in 43, we see the vision of God's glory coming back. Why is that important? Because early in Ezekiel, he saw the vision of God's glory leaving Jerusalem before the city was destroyed by the Babylonians. So when will God dwell again with his people? It's going to be when this temple is built. When this temple is there in Jerusalem. So he sees God's glory coming back in. Then there's an altar of sacrifice. Then there's offerings going on, which we'll look at that. There's a gate for this person called the prince. He's going to come in and sort of preside preside over these things. There's Levites again. The land is divided up into portions. The prince himself has a portion. That's chapter 45. 46, the prince is going to do offerings. So we'll have to talk about who the prince is. There's going to be water. Look at chapter 47. He brought me back to the door of the house. And behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. For the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. He brought me out by the way of the north gate. And he led me around on the outside to the outer gate by the way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. So there's water now coming out of the temple. There's a lot of of water storage underneath the temple today, and and there was in ancient times. But this is springs, water just flowing out down the mountain to the sea. You might think of some New Testament passages that that speak of that. And then uh, more discussion on the land there in 48. And there's priests again, and there's a discussion on what the priests get. So we have some interpretive issues. What are we going to do with these chapters? There's not a temple now. Christ has come back. He said in the New Testament that the temple that God's building right now are believers, Jews and Gentiles, in the church. There's no sacrifices going on right now. Christ has said he is the the final sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice. So what do we do with Ezekiel? You just rip that part out of your Bible? Can't do that. That's not how we deal with it. We, We dig in, we study, we try to make sense of it. Now, some people don't. They just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, I can't make sense of it. 
You know, it's like election. Nobody can know. Turn the page, right? Well, that's fine, I guess, if you're a brand new believer, but it's there for a reason. We've got to study it. We've got to try to make some sense of it. So the two big options are, is this symbolic, talking about something other than a temple, or is this literal? So the symbolic options are, this is a description of the church. Another one, a common one, is this is a description of Christ. And of course, that's more of an allegorical interpretation. It's saying that it's not really talking about a temple, but it's just showing how beautiful this structure is. And then, of course, Christ is beautiful. So that's the analogy. Or is this just a new Jerusalem mentioned at the end of Revelation? Literal would be the other option. And we have three subgroups under that. So let's look at this passage, 43, 10 through 12. As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan. So why is he doing this? Well, one is to give hope, because that's what he's been doing in this second part here of Ezekiel, or third part, since he's talked about the spirit that God's going to put in him, the new covenant. But it's also that they can be ashamed in that day, in Ezekiel's day. They're still sinning. They still seem to not care that God has taken them into captivity and punished them. Some are sorrowful about it, but they haven't really reflected upon their own sin. Even Ezekiel, who's in captivity, preaching to people who are in captivity, God says they're going to harden their hearts. They're going to be stiff-necked. They're going to be stubborn. So show them, describe to them the glory of God in this temple so that they can feel ashamed, feel ashamed that God is so wonderful and glorious and He's going to do this awesome thing like build this temple. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all its designs, all its statutes, all its laws, and write it in their sight so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes and do them. This is the law of the house. Its entire area on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. That sounds literal. If we're going to practice good hermeneutics, we have to say there's the purpose for it. Why? So they can see it. So they can envision it in their mind. So they can know how awesome and mighty this is going to be as they look forward. And if they're repentant of their sins, speak this word to them so they can have some hope that yes, there will be a temple once again. Because remember, at this point, everything's been destroyed. The temple, Jerusalem, it's in ruins. So what then, if we go literal, what's the problem there? We've got to pick a time. Is there a temple today? There's no temple in Jerusalem today. There's a temple mount. But what sits on the temple mount today? The Dome of the Rock, which is a mosque, a place for Muslim worship. So we can say it's not now. So here's the different options that people have. If they do say that it's literal, which I would agree it is literal, this is the second temple. This is the one they built when they came back from captivity. This is the one that then Herod improved upon. So this is the one of Jesus' day. Others would say this is a third temple, maybe one that's going to be built in our lifetime. Maybe the one that you know the Jews in Israel right now would hope that they could rebuild if they could somehow get rid of the dome or the rock. And then uh, others say it's the millennial temple, one that we won't see in this age, but in the kingdom age to come. A special temple built there for a special purpose. So you can probably guess where I'm going with this one because of the Bible references. I think this is a millennial temple. It's not the second temple. We know that. Why? Because we know the measurements of the second temple. And we know the measurements that Ezekiel gives here. It's nowhere close. This thing is huge. We've got some, uh, some renderings we'll look at in a minute, but it's huge. Uh, it's not, I don't think it's something they can even build now. It's, it's just going to be something miraculous. This is going to be something that, that Christ does somehow when he comes back. We don't know how it's going to be built. We just get the measurements after it's already built here in Ezekiel. So let's look at these verses. Um, Isaiah 2, 3 through 4. Haley, can you uh, do that one? Autumn, you do uh, Isaiah 60, 13. Debbie, Isaiah 66, 6. Mike, 66, 20 of Isaiah. And then I'll read Ezekiel 37. So these are other areas that, that I think... Um, are picturing this idea. 
idea of temple, idea of sacrifices. There, there is something being pointed to by these prophets in the future. All right, Isaiah 2, 3 through 4. So there's a temple in Isaiah's day, but he's talking about in the future. There's no war. Nations are at peace. They've hammered their, their swords into plowshares, and they're going to go up to the temple together. When is that going to be? All right, Isaiah 60, 13. So there's going to be a sanctuary. That's, that's temple language. Isaiah 60 is looking into the future. Sometimes we don't know if that's the millennial kingdom or the, the new heavens, new earth. It's kind of hard to tell. But he is looking far into the future there. Isaiah 66, 6. So there's looking at the very end, the very end. Isaiah's looking probably either when Christ comes back and sets up the kingdom or the end of the kingdom. I mean, it's, it's talking about a temple, though. Verse 20, Mike. So there's going to be grain offerings brought up. And it's going to be brought up to celebrate. And there's going to be rejoicing. So going back to Ezekiel now, 37, 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. So we know this is a new covenant. He's looking forward. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. So what is a sanctuary? That's the, the temple, the holy place. My dwelling place also be, will be with them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So there is a talk of temple being in the future. And when nations are at peace, when God will dwell among men. So I'm going with the millennial temple. Here's some uh, previous temples. Solomon's temple there is this little guy. It's wonderful when you read of it in Scripture. But compared to some of these others, it's, it's quite small. Uh, if you would have been there, though, in Solomon's day, you would not have thought that was small. You would have thought that was glorious and wonderful and worshiped the Lord. Herod improved upon the temple they built when they got back from captivity. So when they came back from captivity, they built a temple. But the old men who had seen Solomon's temple wept. Uh, they wept because it was so small. So Herod, he's very wealthy. He's stolen money and taken money. And the Roman government has given him things. And so he's going to build a grand temple. And so he starts working on it. It's not even done. It's really an improvement on the one they built when they got back from captivity. So it's still the second temple. It's not even done when Herod dies. And so that's why the Pharisees challenged Jesus. You know, it took 40 years to build this temple. You're going to destroy it in three days. But look how much bigger it is even than Solomon's temple. Herod wanted to show off. He put these extra porches out front, courtyard for women, etc. There's Ezekiel's temple, kind of to scale. I couldn't find a good comparison to Herod's, but you can just see there's the building there, and you can see the temple sort of in the center, top left there. There's buildings behind it. There's all these gates, and these gates have covers on them. These are huge, and they have a gate for each entrance. And all these chambers, there's a wall I mean, this is huge. This is big. Bigger than anything that's ever been built on the Temple Mount. This is going to stretch far and wide. You almost get the sense, if you study the geography of the Holy Mountain, that things have to be changed. The, the structure, the topography on the mountain would have to be flattened somehow to get this. And if you put Ezekiel together with Zechariah, together with Revelation, the mountain is going to go much higher than it is now. So things are going to change when Christ comes back. Any questions about that that I can actually answer? Yes, that's coming up. That might be the next question. There it is, the sacrifices, number 15. So what about these sacrifices? And this is, this is not easy when we put it together with the book of Hebrews. But we have to, to work at it. Not everything is easy in Scripture. So 43.18, And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the statutes for the altar on the day it is built. To offer burnt offerings on it, to sprinkle blood on it. You shall give to the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God. A young bull for a sin offering. You shall take some of its blood, put it on the forehorn. So he starts going through the offerings there. And there's a lot of detail if you look at this. All the way down until the end. Even a sin offering, an atonement offering. So yeah, it's, that's not easy. How do we put that together? Theologically, that is a challenge. And we have to struggle with that. We have to work with that. Uh, I think working with what the offerings do would be a better option, though, than sort of just throwing 
eight, nine chapters out of the Bible, or saying, as some would, that this is symbolic of the church or of Christ or of the New Jerusalem. And by the way, there are some who say the New Jerusalem in Revelation is just symbolic of Christ. Um, we have to be careful with how we interpret. So what are these? Are these symbolic sacrifices, not actually real? Or are these literal? Uh, let's look at Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen. 15. Uh, Amy, can you do Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen through 18 with a loud voice? So maybe I can pick it up here on the mic. And then Chris, you too. Zechariah fourteen twenty-one. So these are some cross-references to look at. Zechariah is clearly talking about when the Messiah comes back. All right, go ahead, Amy. So there's going to be a righteous branch from the branch of David. David will never lack a king upon the throne, referring to the Davidic covenant. We're all good with that. We know the Davidic covenant. That sounds great. Except he references another covenant, the priestly covenant. And he talks about the Levitical priesthood there. And so we can't forget about that either. God did promise the line of Phineas. Remember the guy who takes a spear and runs it through the Israelite who's being immoral with the pagan in the book of Numbers. And God says, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you and your descendants. And remember, Eli then eventually gets taken off as the high priest. His lineage stops and he goes through Phineas and then Zadok of uh, David's day. So there is a covenant that God promised that there would be a priest on the throne, a line of priests, Levitical priests, because we could say, well, Jesus is the priest. He is. But according to the order of Melchizedek, which is different than Levi. So if we hold the Davidic covenant, we also have to think of this uh, priestly promise, this priestly covenant that God made. So Zechariah 14, 21. So here's uh, clearly Christ has come back. He set up his reign here. Uh, the, the, all of Israel is repenting. They're looking upon him whom they've pierced. And they're, they're going up to the house of the Lord. And it even says if people don't go up to the house of the Lord, like from Egypt, for example, there's not going to be rain that falls upon them. There's going to be a plague in their midst back in verse 18. And here, the verse that Chris just read speaks of a sacrifice, an altar, so yeah, that's, that's hard for us uh, New Covenant Christians. We're operating typically from Romans to Hebrews and thinking, okay, what do the epistles say? They don't say anything about this. We wouldn't expect them to say a lot about the future because they're epistles. Now we see that in Revelation. We see that with what Jesus says. But Hebrews, I think, is, is the hard book if you try to read Hebrews and compare it to Ezekiel. I do think it's literal. Uh, I lean more towards it being a memorial something to look back to. I don't really know what's going on in the millennium. There's not a lot of verbiage telling us what does the day-to-day life look like. But I think it's some kind of remembrance for Israel of what they did, what, where they've come from, what Christ has done. I don't know what we're going to do as Gentiles. Maybe we're just watching. We've never seen that happen before. I have to deal, though, with these texts and try to fit them in. Let's go back and just look briefly there at... Um, Ezekiel 43, 15, and 16. There's another view here. It's, it requires quite a bit of depth, so I'm just going to mention it in number two there. So Ezekiel 43, 15. Language that kind of sounds like it's being described just as something to look back to. 43, 15. The altar hearth shall be four cubits, and from the altar hearth shall extend upwards four horns. Now the altar hearth shall be uh, 12 cubits. He's describing the size of it. Uh, verse yeah, maybe it's 45. No, I'm, I'm doing number one, 43, 15, and 16. Is there different on the notes? Yeah, so verse 43, 17, the ledge shall be 14 cubits by four. Uh, the border around it shall be half a cubit. So whatever it is, it's a real altar. And I think the easiest answer here would be it's a memorial. The harder answer is this other one, number two, efficacious for theocratic harmony. That even though there's not sinful actions going on, there's still in the millennium, there's still some unbelievers and they have sin in their heart. It's not being expressed because the king is there. Now you might think, how, how can there be sin? The Lord is upon the earth. Well, just read the end of Revelation 20. Satan is released for a little while. What does he do? He gathers an army. Where's that army come from? Who's going to follow Satan with Christ upon the earth? So you see, it just leads to more questions. 
Uh, we don't have time to go into all the eschatology there, but essentially there are people who join with Satan at the end of a thousand years. So those who hold B2 would say that there's some kind of transaction going on there to keep harmony. I don't have time to go into the details, nor do I even understand all the details of that view. But I, I lean more towards memorial if you read the MacArthur Study Bible. I believe that's where it's at as well. So yeah, that's the best answer I, I can give you uh, from my interpretation there. It was a good question though, Kristen. And it's not a, an easy one either. But here they are, if you if you compare them to the Levitical sacrifices, and then this is from the MacArthur Study Bible, the Ezekiel sacrifices, they line up. So burnt, grain, peace, sin, trespass, and drink. And there's even talk of an atonement. See, that's the problem with the memorial view is, what's this atonement sacrifice? Is that just remembering what Christ did for us? Is that similar to our Lord's Supper memorial? A lot of questions I'm going to have for Ezekiel in the Millennial Kingdom. And when he puts on his class, I'm going to go there. I'm going to ask him to go through this a little more slowly for me and say, help me out here. You know, I'm taking his seminar for sure. All right, the last one, the identity of the prince. So you're reading, you see the the future, you're thinking future temple, maybe in the millennium. Okay, obviously the prince is who? It's got to be Christ, right? It's got to be the Messiah. Well, let's slow down. 44.3, as for the prince... He shall sit in it as a prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of the gate and shall go out by the same way. So he's got his own gate. He's coming and going. 45.22. On that day, the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. Well, we got a problem there. He can't be the Messiah, right? Because a sin offering is provided for himself and the people. So uh, it can't be the Messiah. He never sinned. What's he doing even participating in that? Um, 46, 16. Thus says the Lord God, if the prince gives a gift out of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. So he's got sons. The Messiah doesn't have sons, not literal physical sons. It is their possession by inheritance. But if he gives a gift from his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty. Then it shall return to the prince. His inheritance shall be only his sons. It shall belong to them. The prince shall not take from the people's inheritance. So it's talking about his inheritance, his family. So what's going on here? Well, I don't think it's the Messiah. I don't think it's a resurrected David because the language would be more specific. So I'm just going to go with the leader of Israel under the Messiah. And you get that language a bit in 45.22. The prince shall provide for himself and for all the people. So he's, he's some kind of maybe a political leader. Although Christ is ruling as king, there's prime ministers under kings today. So maybe that's the kind of language that we're looking at here. It can't be the Messiah though. He's a, he has sons and he's doing this sin offering. So you guys study up and read that. And when you write your book on interpreting that passage, um, I'll be glad to read it. But I think that's about the best we can do if we're going to take the passage literally. Any questions for Frank on that? Frank, can you describe the uh, efficacious for theocratic harmony view? No. That's a 10-hour class for another time, right? All right, so here's what I want to leave you with on that. Is this some crazy, dispensational, silly stuff? Well, here's the problem. Set labels aside, and let's just look at the passage. There's There's too much fine description of measurements of every little thing He even says it's for Israel to see what's going to happen, to bring shame to them. If we do that with Ezekiel, we're going to have to do the same thing with Revelation when there's all these measurements on the new Jerusalem. And some do. Some try to be consistent and they say, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is about Christ. And it's just a picture of Christ. The Song of Solomon is a picture of Christ. And the new Jerusalem in Revelation is all about a picture of Christ. I have to take the text more literally. I have to go through and look and see what those measurements are about. Whether that fits neatly with everything else, that's the struggle. That's doing theology. That's doing Bible study. Not everything fits easily. That's why we look at interpretive issues and see. It does fit in God's mind, but we have to study. God has put little cookies on the bottom shelf. And we get to eat those when we're first saved. And then he puts some on the middle of the shelf. And then for Frank, he puts things on the high shelf. And Hector and Greg, you know, you, you can climb up and, and get the high cookies. And that's the harder stuff you got to work at. Okay, to a little bit more easier book, right? Daniel?
Why are y'all laughing here? Daniel, the book of Daniel. There's the uh, restored gate. I think that's the Ishtar gate somewhere in Iraq, uh, in the old city of Babylon. They tried to restore it under Saddam Hussein. But I don't, I don't know what it looks like today with ISIS and all of that. Who's been there since? Anybody? John, you've been over there? I've talked to somebody. I don't, I don't know if that was here. Thomas, was that you? Somebody went through Babylon and got to see it when they were there in the Marines. No? Was it, is it the buildings that, that Saddam tried to restore? Are they still there? So the city was basically nothing. Um, and then Saddam tried to build it back up to show the glory of the people of Iraq. And that's what it looked like. The Ishtar Gate, one of the famous gates coming into Babylon and uh, has all these animals on it. Everybody got notes for Daniel? Raise your hand if you want notes. I don't know who will give it to you, but they're right there by Thomas. Carl will give it to you if you need notes for Daniel. Came in late. We won't look up to see who raises their hands or anything. All right. The title is Daniel. It's that way in Hebrew. It's that way in English. The events of Daniel from 605 B.C. to 536 B.C. So look at verse 1, chapter 1. The third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So this is 605. Not when the city's destroyed. That happens later. Nebuchadnezzar comes into Israel. He destroys. He conquers. Israel's trying to put up a fight. They don't have any resources. They're asking for Egypt for help. Anything but ask God for help. And uh, God has let them be punished because they've abandoned him. They worship pagan gods. And so here comes Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't destroy the city. They sort of make a, a peace agreement. He takes all the captives away, though, or many of them, including Daniel and his three friends, all the youngest, the brightest, uh, some of the best young men. And he leaves the city with a puppet king. Then later, in 586, they rebel again and say, no, you're not our king, Nebuchadnezzar. And so here comes Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the city in 586. So the book goes all the way to the last date, probably uh, 10-1. Of course, Daniel talks about the future after his day. But this last prophecy here is 10-1. And the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And so we know when Nebuchadnezzar ruled, we know when Cyrus ruled, we can put these dates together. Uh, Daniel lived a long life. I mean, look at that, 605 to 536. What is that? 70 years? And he's a young man when he's taken in 605. So he might have lived into his 90s. He might have made it to 100. We don't really know how old he was when he got taken, probably in his teenage years. Where is it in our Bibles versus the Hebrew Bible? Remember the Hebrew Bible, the one that the Jews even use today, even if it's translated into English, is a little bit different order. So when you're evangelizing to your Jewish friend and you say, turn to the book of Daniel, they're going to go to a slightly different spot in the order of books. It's between Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, remember, is one book. And then it's between Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. Why would it be put there? Anybody got a guess? Just chronologically, think of why would it be put there. Esther, we're studying that in our Bible studies, and Ezra and Nehemiah. That's the time that Daniel is working in Babylon, right? So he starts with the Babylonians. The empire gets conquered by the Persians. He works then for Cyrus, the Persian king, all the way up until his death. So that is, uh, he even goes past Cyrus a, a bit. So that's the time frame. So in the Jews' mind... Daniel's not so much a prophet, but he's one of the ones who does the writings. There's a group called the writings. But Jesus called Daniel a prophet, so there's no problem putting it in the English version of prophets. That's fine. But there's, there's prophecy in the Hebrew canon outside of the prophets, right? Moses had prophecy. Moses is in the Torah, the law. He's not a prophet, is he? You've got to be in the prophet section to be a prophet. No. Anybody who speaks for God is a prophet, including the apostles. They had the gift of prophecy. So there is the Hebrew canon, just in case you're wondering. It's pretty similar to ours. It's pretty similar. But they have this group. We call it the wisdom, literature, and poetry section. And they call it the writings, and they add a lot of other books to it that we would say, no, 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 that's history. Well, the writings included wisdom, poetry, and some history. 
Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. So mostly later books that have, they had a hard time putting in with the prophets. You have the former prophets in their mind. That's Joshua through Kings. And the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Everything else gets dumped into the writing. So Jesus mentions this three-part division, and there are other places where he mentions a two-part division, the Law and the Prophets. So it's not as if uh, we're sinning by moving Daniel and our English Bibles to after Ezekiel. Okay, what's the theme of this book? The theme is the destiny of God's people, God's sovereign plan for Israel. The, the panorama, the big picture view, where... Where does this captivity in Babylon fit in the overarching history of the world going forward? What's God's plan here? Remember, we look at Daniel and we just think, oh, that's interesting. I'm trying to figure these prophecies out. They're in captivity. Their people have been taken away. In Daniel's lifetime, the city gets destroyed. All their loved ones are dead. Probably the the young and healthy have been taken. Uh, It's been a while for some of these by the end of the book of Daniel. It's been a while since they've even seen the land. They have had children who've grown up and haven't seen the land. And so what is God's plan in all this? See, that's what happens when hard things come in your life. You wonder, what's God doing? And Daniel's going to tell his people what God is doing. The purpose, Israel would suffer under the times of the Gentiles. But a time will come when God will establish the messianic kingdom, which will last forever. There is going to be a time of suffering. There is going to be a time of of punishment, physical punishment, discipline, we might say, for the nation. God is going to purify his nation. He's going to bring a remnant back. They're going to become corrupt again. He's going to send the Messiah. The Messiah is going to preach the gospel. People are going to be saved. There's going to be a remnant throughout the church age. And then, of course, the end times will come. So Daniel is covering all that with so much detail. That liberals think this was written much later. He describes Greece. He describes Alexander. He describes Xerxes. He describes Rome with detail. He names some of these leaders. And they say, this couldn't have been written when Daniel said. It couldn't have been written in 605 to 536. Because all the stuff Daniel's prophesying hasn't happened yet. You see what that is? That's a denial. A denial of... God revealing things to men. And the secular mindset, it can't be possible that any man would know the future because they don't believe that God is real. They don't believe that God speaks through his prophets. But here it is. We know. uh, We read, in fact, in Ezekiel, didn't we see a mention of Daniel? Ezekiel mentions the name Daniel. And so the liberals say, well, that's not Daniel of the Bible. Really? Ezekiel mentions Job. He mentions Daniel. I mean, these Daniel is, had already been written. Daniel was in existence as a real person, even in Ezekiel's early years. All right, outline. The first chapter is about Daniel himself and the remnant. What happens to these young people when they get taken? And so we get the Daniel diet, right, out of chapter 1. Everybody's on the Daniel diet at the beginning of the year? Just vegetables? Vegetarian. Ezekiel bread. I don't Is Ezekiel bread on the... No, that's just vegetables. You can't even have bread, I don't think, can you? Just for the, y'all who don't know, a lot of seeker-friendly churches want to, you know, focus on their holiness, and so they do a Daniel diet. It's not just a fast, but it's an actual Daniel diet. And it also, of course, helps you get fit and healthy, where you just eat vegetables for the first couple of weeks. So sadly, I was part of a church one time that did that, and I remember we went out to eat with my uh, father-in-law, and he was there too. He'd never done such a thing in his life. And uh, he was like, I'm just having some meat. I don't care about the Daniel diet anymore. And we thought we were more holy because we could last a few more days. So that's Daniel and his friends. They just ask for um, vegetables only. They don't want the rich, expensive stuff. Uh, Some of that could have, of course, been um, it was unholy, unclean food. But it was more to show God will take care of us. We trust in the Lord. The second section is a prophetic plan for the Gentiles. So this is when he goes through all those visions and it has four different parts, five different parts. And we'll look at those in some detail probably next week. And uh, that section is in Aramaic, which is very interesting. Most of the Old Testament is in Hebrew. This is in Aramaic. There's some parts of uh, Ezra 
that are in Aramaic as well. Aramaic is very similar to Hebrew. The same letters, because the Hebrews later stole the Aramaic letters and used them. So when we look at our Hebrew Bibles, Old Testament today, it's Aramaic script. But of course, the grammar and vocabulary is slightly different. So there's really a third language of the Bible. You often hear Greek and Hebrew, but there's a third language, which is Aramaic. I think it's around 10 total chapters in the Bible. Anybody remember that? 10 total chapters of Aramaic in the Old Testament with Daniel and, and Ezra. Why do y'all think that, that that was written in Aramaic? What would be the point? That was the language of, yeah, the Persians, Babylonians, the people of that day, the rulers. It's as if God is saying, yeah, I'm speaking to my people here who can understand this because they're going to speak Aramaic in the captivity and, and even take it back with them. So by Jesus' day, people were speaking Aramaic in Galilee and stuff. But it's also something that the Babylonians themselves could look at and later the Persians. And anybody who could understand Aramaic, they could see what was going to happen in the future. Even Babylon's not going to last. Even Persia is not going to last. Even the Greeks are not going to last. Even the Romans are not going to last. And so that's, that's amazing to me that they could see it in that day. Of course, we know that God speaks to all peoples, but mostly the old is focused on Israel. Okay, number, and, and by the way, in Ezra, the only parts that are Aramaic are the letters that come back from the king are in Aramaic. Section three, the prophetic plan for Israel. There is a future. So we could say the remnant, God is in control. There is a future. If you wanted to do a three-part outline like that. So there is a future for God's people. And eight through 12 is when we get again into eschatology, what's happening in the future. It starts in the Greek period. So we have this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. I told you that he was going to come up in Ezekiel a lot more, but I was thinking of my notes for Daniel. If you look at page two and three, page three of your notes, when we get into the interpretive issues, oh, I got Ezekiel here. Let me grab some Daniel notes. We're going to see this guy coming up again, aren't we? So he's going to come up in number six, Antiochus Epiphanes. He's going to come up in eight. He's going to come up in ten. Why? Because a lot of the last few chapters of Daniel describe what's going to happen for Israel after they come back to the land and there's these battles going on with the generals and future followers of the Greek people, Alexander the Great. And he describes it in such detail. Again, it's, it's amazing. Historians can't figure it out. How could this man know this? He has to have lived later, closer to the time of Jesus. No, this is God's prophecy. He wants him to know there's going to be this back and forth going on in the Holy Land. There's going to be this Greek leader to the north and this one to the south, the Ptolemies. And they're going to fight back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And eventually, some ships are going to show up from the west, the Romans. And they're going to put a stop to that. And then uh, Daniel starts talking about the 70 weeks. And so we get into the Messiah who's coming. The Messiah's already been mentioned back in chapter 7. And then we um, get the end. The resurrection is even mentioned by the end of chapter 12. There's also this angel speaking to him in chapter 12. Michael, the only other angel mentioned in the Bible. There's two angels mentioned. Who knows their names? Michael and Gabriel. That's it. No other names. I know everybody says there's all these angel names. There's only two mentioned in the Bible. And they're archangels. I think they're, they're powerful angels. Key chapters. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Some of you don't realize there's only 12 chapters in Daniel. You can't really single out one chapter. I mean, every single one, is he's bringing out something new. We'll just run through them real quick here and, and maybe get into some more detail next week. Chapter 1 is Daniel's personal history in Babylon. 2 gets into Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, if you've read it before, you know Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he can't solve it. And so he needs Daniel to help him. Chapter 3, he creates this idolatrous image. And then the, the three friends get thrown into the fiery furnace. Chapter 4, he has another vision he has to have Daniel solve for him. And it's the great tree and these, uh, these cows, which are speaking of him. And then chapter 5, we get Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. So this is after Nebuchadnezzar has died. Daniel is still an advisor to the king. This king who rules over the city of Babylon, Belshazzar, sees the writing on the wall, and he loses the city to the Persians. 
So chapter 6, the Persians are now introduced. And there's this guy named Darius. That's not really his name, but we'll get into that later. He has a decree, and that's the lion's den. So he throws Daniel into the lion's den because his advisors tricked him. And you can't change the law of the Medes and the Persians. So Darius has to throw him in. He gets saved by God. No lion even touches him. So we get into the visions in chapter 7, the four beasts vision. We get the messianic kingdom uh, being mentioned here. And we see the ancient of days, God on his throne. Chapter 8 is the ram, goat, and the little horn. Chapter 9, Daniel's 70-week vision. Chapter 10, Daniel's preparation by Michael the archangel. Uh, 11, Daniel gets into the 69 weeks, Persia and Greece. And then he talks about the 70th week. I'm going to show you. I think that's the tribulation period. And it has to, I mean, it has to be, call it what you want. It's a, it's a time of tribulation for Israel. And it has to be something in the future. If you take the 69 leading up to the Messiah. So we'll get into that. You pretty much have to take the 69 leading up to the Messiah. His first coming. And then 12, Daniel seals up the book. The angel says, seal up the book. Seal up the book. In other words, only people who have the Spirit of God are going to be able to read this and understand it. Even though it speaks about the history of the world as far as God's perspective is concerned, the future, no one's really going to be able to understand it except believers. So unbelievers have a real hard time. There's a lot of unbelievers that write commentaries. They would say they're believers, but they're really not because they doubt God's word and slice it and dice it. They have a real hard time with Daniel. And even believers struggle with some of these prophecies as well. Okay, let's stop there, and we'll get into key verses next week. Key people, got to know the people. There's a lot of funny names in the book of Daniel, a lot of Babylonian and Persian names. I'll recommend a couple commentaries, and then we'll look at some of the interpretive issues. Let me close in prayer. Father, you're good to us in giving us your prophetic words. Sometimes they are more work for us to study than we might want, but that is why you've given teachers, preachers, And even as believers, we can strive to know more. We can work at this. We know that you honor that. You've told us to use our minds to study Scripture, to fill our minds with it. And we're not losing any time by digging into these Old Testament books and learning more. Help us with that, Lord. Give us uh, the peace to know your word, the ability to understand it, and apply it in our own lives. Help us to live holy before you and help us to learn from all of Israel's sins and mistakes. We ask this in the name of our holy Messiah. Amen.